It's time to breathe new life into the social entrepreneur by empowering you to make a living through fulfilling work that will impact lives. You'll make money, but more importantly, you'll make a difference. Welcome to the Change Creator Podcast. It's time to build a business with purpose. Now here's your host, Adam Force. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your host, Adam Force. Welcome to the Change Creator Podcast show. You know, there's a lot of people out there. They're starting nonprofits. They're starting for-profit social enterprises. Um, and, you know, the challenge is always, how do you grow the business? How do you get to, you know, $2 million a year? And today we're going to talk to someone who did some incredible research with a 200 person uh, survey of different uh, high-performing social entrepreneurs and nonprofit founders, and she actually made a book out of it called Social Startup Success, and you know, it's trying to understand how do social ventures scale to over $2 million. Okay, so that's something that we're going to dive into here. Now, her name is Kathleen Kelly Janis, and she's an award-winning social entrepreneur. She's a lawyer and a lecturer at Stanford University where she teaches social entrepreneurship. She also is the co-founder of an organization called Spark and is chair of the board of directors of of Accountability Council, a startup human rights organization. Uh, Kathleen, you know, informally advises a variety of other nonprofits and social entrepreneurs, both locally and globally. So this should be a really exciting conversation. We're going to find out what she learned about scaling social ventures. Uh, Guys, um, quick update. We have just, we're just about ready to release next week. This is, you know, January 11th. And next week we should be releasing our Dr. Muhammad Yunus. He's a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And we're going to have an exclusive cover story with him to share uh, in the latest edition of Change Creator Magazine. So be sure to stop by, sign up and start your free one month trial. Uh, we appreciate any reviews and feedback. It goes a long way. In other news, guys, stop by our Facebook page. We have started a Facebook group. We have over 2,000 members, and we're looking for more people like you to contribute your awesome ideas and passions. We want to connect, so stop over to Facebook and join the Facebook group, I Am a Change Creator. All right, let's dive into this conversation. I know you're going to dig this. Hey, Kathleen, welcome to the Change Creator Podcast show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Adam. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm excited to chat with you. Um, you have so much exciting stuff going on. Um, obviously, your background is pretty pretty awesome as well. Even before this really great book we're going to talk about, which is Social Startup Success, How the Best Nonprofits Launch, Scale Up, and Make a Difference. You put a lot of heart and soul into that book. I'm excited to talk about it. Before we do, can you just give us a little bit more background um, on what you were doing before this and why you got into this idea of pursuing this mission for the book? Good question. I uh, was raised in a small town in Napa, California. And, you know, like so many people who get into nonprofit work, I came from a family that really cared about giving back to the community. My uh, mom and dad were on dozens of boards uh, of directors of nonprofits growing up. And so, you know, we often found ourselves on the weekends volunteering at soup kitchens or uh, at local health clinics. And, but my parents 
didn't stop our involvement with nonprofits with those volunteer opportunities. They always made us super aware of the fact that we needed to not just support nonprofits and their beneficiaries, but we needed to support the conditions so that nonprofits could be successful. And so when we sat around the dinner table, oftentimes our conversations would be about these nonprofits that were struggling and what my parents were doing to help fundraise for them or um, to put on a gala event to to support the, the organization. And as I grew up and and became involved in the nonprofit industry myself and started a, a small nonprofit in San Francisco called Spark, which engages young professionals in new forms of philanthropy to support gender equality. Mm-hmm. I became aware of these issues on a personal basis. I, I um, We were early on growing the organization at a very fast pace. The, the impact was really strong on our membership and um, their engagement in social causes. And so as we decided that we wanted to scale the organization, we learned very quickly that scale is hard and that we hit a wall and couldn't raise the capital that we needed to get to the next level as an organization. And so I learned in my research at Stanford, where I teach social entrepreneurship, that this wall is a real thing. And that actually two thirds of nonprofits in the United States or 200,000 organizations are just um, drowning, (laughs) that they are $500,000 in revenue and below. And oftentimes living in this nonprofit starvation cycle where they're barely making payroll every month, as opposed to really focusing on the social causes that, and that the, the, these pressing social problems that they're trying to solve. And so that was really what got me into writing this book, which is thinking about all those nonprofits that I grew up supporting, um, those small community-based organizations, and even the nonprofit that I co-founded myself, and thinking about how can we give these nonprofits the tools that they need to grow so that we aren't wasting resources as a society, um, just sort of feeding these nonprofits that are barely making ends meet? How can we support nonprofit organizations so they not only survive, but are actually thriving and making a dent in these social problems that we all want to see solved, like uh, criminal justice reform and climate change um, and, you know, global inequality? How can, how can we really support those causes? Yeah, uh, I love that. So my first question out of the gate has got to be um, why I, I see from your background, you were involved with the nonprofit space. Um, tell me a little bit about your approach here, because you focus on nonprofits, but not the for-profit social enterprise model, which is, you know, tackling these causes as well. So I'm just curious on your thinking there. Yeah, it's a great question because uh, more and more folks are really thinking about solving social problems in very blurred boundaries between the nonprofit and the for-profit sector, that there's actually a lot of crossover. And in fact, Echoing Green, one of the largest seed funders of social entrepreneurs around the world, is now seeing that almost 50% or more of their applications are now for for-profit companies, not nonprofit companies. And so... Um, 
So absolutely, for-profits are doing really important work to solve social issues as well. Um, A couple of things that I thought about when I was writing this book, one is that I think because of the funding challenge, I think there are certain issues that nonprofits face and ways that they um, tackle those challenges, um, like fundraising in a very particular way that doesn't necessarily apply to for-profits, although... I think that the lessons in the book on, you know, leadership, measuring impact, innovation, all those things can apply both to the for-profit world or the nonprofit world. I just chose to limit my research to nonprofits to, yeah. to keep it very specific and limited. Um, but I think I think we also have to think about the ways in which market forces cause social problems in the first place. And we can't always rely on markets to solve those social problems. So there's a very important role that nonprofits play in helping to uh, fill the gap, really, where government isn't meeting a need, where business isn't meeting a need. If it were Uh, profitable to bring clean water to the 800 million people in this world who need it, Coca-Cola might have done that a long time ago. (laughs) So, um, you know, we need to think about, okay, well, what, what are the problems that businesses are not reaching and how can we reach those? Let me give you an example of an organization that is doing this well. So, Hot Bread Kitchen was founded by Jessamine Rodriguez. It's this amazing uh, cooperative uh, that supports low-income women in Harlem, New York, to get the skills that they need to go into the food services industry. And so when Jessamine came up with this idea, she thought, here's a great opportunity to not only train these women who wouldn't otherwise have access to training, but let's make it into a business where 100% of the revenue that we generate from the baked goods that come out of those programs, like breads that they would sell wholesale to Whole Foods or JetBlue or this cafe that they built in the Central Kitchen in Harlem, Uh, to sell goods to the community. Those profits could go back into supporting the job training program. And then the program would be 100% sustainable and wouldn't rely on philanthropic contributions. Sounds great. The problem that she realized is that actually she was selling her job training program short by trying to keep things 100% sustainable. Because Let's say that it was only profitable to have a six-week job training program, but in fact, it was better for the women and made them more effective in the long term to extend that program beyond when it was profitable. So maybe have it longer being for 12 weeks. Or what if philanthropic capital could be used, for example, to provide childcare for those women so that they could come to the training program and not have to worry about finding someone to take care of their kids and miss classes when they couldn't. Um, So ultimately, she realized that the place for philanthropic dollars in that organization was to make it more effective, to to have a a class um, A job training program that was really about serving the women and not just about being sustainable. So now that organization relies 65% on their earned revenue, which is a great source of capital to support the organization. But then they take in 35% of their capital from uh, the nonprofit uh, philanthropic arm to help uh, really boost their programming and and make it a, a great program. 
Okay, so and so this is basically a hybrid organization now that's that's leveraging both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you see more. You know, I don't see as much uh, when it comes to hybrids. You know, I also interview a lot of people, and it's it's usually one or the other. Um, have you, in your experience now in pursuing the book, um, did you come across more hybrids um, as you did that? Yeah, there was this article that uh, Cheryl Dorsey and and some folks at Harvard, um, Cheryl Dorsey is the CEO of Equine Green, wrote in the Stanford Social Innovation Review a few years ago called the In Search of the Hybrid Ideal. And I think everyone was thinking like, okay, everybody's moving towards hybrids and this is mm-hmm. going to be this great kind of idealistic vision where like Hot Broad Kitchen, which they actually feature in that article, part of their profits will come from the business side and then part of their profits will come from philanthropic capital and um that sounds great in in theory <laughs> in in practice the lines are really blurred and it's very challenging so um for-profit investors are um are going to be hard to find if you don't really focus on their return on the investment and so you know that makes it challenging if you um have a nonprofit arm on the on the flip side of it philanthropic uh, foundations are not necessarily going to fund for-profit businesses. They actually can't legally. Um, so it, it, it creates a challenge in terms of where you get the funding. And then there's also the legal challenge. It, it's very complicated and oftentimes expensive to hire a lawyer to do the the legal structuring right of a hybrid organization. Yeah. And to figure out where where you're going to get the most bang for your buck in terms of your legal structure. And so oftentimes the default is that folks really just gravitate toward one or the other because it's easier. Um, and so that's what I think we're seeing more and more in even even hybrids like Hot Bread Kitchen, which which are hybrids, are, are really, I mean, she structured it as a nonprofit because it would have been too complicated and too expensive to have a for-profit arm separately. And it didn't really serve her. So I think if you're an organization and you're thinking, do I, do I want to be a for-profit company or a nonprofit company? The, the question that really um, is, I think, the deciding question is, where's, where's the capital going to come from? Where's going to be your best right, access right. to capital? Is it going to be from a foundation or from individual donors or from a government that's going to want to pay for your third-party services? Or is it going to be on the investment side from folks who could potentially see a return on their capital? And right. uh, and that's what's making people decide one way or the other. Yeah, that all makes sense. And it's interesting. And, and you're right, as our team even talks to lawyers a lot more now, um, you really want to simplify that process if you, if you don't want to go broke on legal fees. <laughs> so. Exactly. There are some great resources out there. In the book, I feature uh, this this work of Rob Wexler, who is an amazing lawyer in San Francisco, who is at Adler Colvin. A little shout out to Rob there. This <laughs> work full time and does um, an incredible job of, of thinking through all of the various scenarios. He's written an, an article that is kind of like the buffet of options and gives you an idea of all the things you should be thinking about. But ultimately, you need to hire a lawyer. You can't do this on your own. And so that is often a gating question for for a lot of folks. 100%. Now, I guess the way I also see what you're saying is, you know, people may look at, they have to look at the business they want to pursue, whatever that idea is. And they could say, like, I spoke to Dr. Alistair Harris. He's with Blue Ventures, and he won the Skoll Award in 2015, maybe? 
Mm -hmm. And um, he said, well, when I hung up my fins and decided to be a social entrepreneur, a reluctant social entrepreneur, that is, he was like, well, I decided to go for profit in order to to innovate a model that can make us uh, self-sufficient, right? So the money is more reliable if you're not relying on donations and fundraising and those types of things. So based on what you were saying before, it seems like, well, if you can look at the problem and it can be solved in a business structure, maybe you come up with an innovative model or some type of solution, you know, great. But there's going to be certain areas when you when you assess what you're trying to do that may not have um, a model that can be self-sustaining through for-profit. So in that in that respect, you would go in the nonprofit route and have to learn how to raise money yourself and do those things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, honestly, you'll be raising money on either end, whether you're a for-profit company or uh, raising money from um, venture firms or whether you're a nonprofit raising money from foundations. Um, and, and certain sectors are going to be more amenable to <clears throat> to a for-profit model versus a nonprofit model. Human rights organizations, for example, will never have a for-profit revenue stream for the most part. These are people who are serving populations to help them realize their rights. People aren't going to pay money for their rights. <laughs> people will pay right, money right. for clean water or for schools or for other um services where they can see some sort of a benefit. Um, And so the other thing you have to think about is who are you serving? There are folks who are in kind of the middle of the pyramid. Um, I hate to distinguish between, you know, a dollar a day and two dollars a day. If you're poor, you're poor. But there is a distinction when it comes to when people might be willing to pay for your services. And those folks at the very, very bottom of the pyramid, no matter how great your services aren't going to be able to pay for them. And so for organizations that are serving that bottom, bottom segment, a nonprofit model is probably always going to be the best answer. Right, right. And it's a good point. You, you most likely, I mean, there are the rare cases where you get a product, you start selling it, and you can be self-sufficient without getting outside investors. Um, but nine times out of 10, um, in my experience, people end up doing a round of, of fundraising, whether it's from a venture capitalist, impact investor, and then, of course, if you're nonprofit, it's from, from the people. So one way or the other, it kind of goes down that road. Yeah, we're all fundraising. <laughs> yeah, we're all fundraising. <laughs> Um, very fun process. Um, so let's, let's just switch gears a little bit now and, and dive into some more of the details here about scaling the nonprofit. I mean, this was a big focus uh, for your book about hitting that $2 million a year mark. Why were people falling short? What were the struggles? Those types of things. Um, so you have five things that um, have been outlined as some key takeaways, right? So I'm just going to mention them real quick, uh, which is testing ideas, measuring impact, um, fund experimentation, leading collaboratively, and telling compelling stories, which I love to hear. Um, so let's, can we just kind of touch on some of these so people can understand you know, what you learned about these five areas and maybe a key takeaway? Um, obviously, they can dive into more in the book, but it would be good to just get them some insight here as we speak. So can we talk about testing ideas? Absolutely. So, so going through each one. So my process behind the research was to go out and survey 
250 social entrepreneurs from the top funding portfolios in the United States, everything from Echoing Green to Ashoka to Skoll Foundation. Um, and 250 people responded to my survey where I tested various uh, strategies to see which ones seemed to be indicators of folks who were scaling more quickly than others. And then I went out with those findings and with that data and interviewed 100 people around the country, everyone from Wendy Kopp at Teach for America, Ellen Casey from City Year, to newer social entrepreneurs like Laura Weidman Powers at Code 2040 or Jessamine Rodriguez from Hot Bread Kitchen. Mm -hmm. And the five findings that you mentioned are the ones that really bubble to the top, that all of these organizations that were scaling to $2 million and beyond, which is where I kind of define a certain level of sustainability. You're no, no longer living paycheck to paycheck or payroll to payroll, but you're actually able to kind of become more sustainable and uh, focus more on building the organization. The organizations tended to use these five strategies. So they all started with testing ideas and having some sort of a pilot program that they talk about, this period of illumination before they actually go public with their idea. Because the idea is that once you go public, it's a lot harder that once you've stuck a stake in the ground saying, this is what I'm doing. Yeah to change your idea. Um, and so these organizations uh, go through this piloting process and that's really critical because ultimately it sets into motion this culture of innovation that helps people constantly be learning from what's working and what's not, embracing failure, um, implementing uh, processes to not only what I love one social entrepreneur said, the best organizations fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Right. So that it doesn't become this issue of like holding on to this one solution that you've found, but actually being honest with yourself about what's working and what's not. And, um, and, and um, getting that to the next, to the next level. Uh, in the book, I, I talk about, an organization that used design thinking early on to um, come up with this preschool bus model. An organization called Aspire Schools was thinking about how to how to test the the problem of the lack of pre-K uh, education in the Bay Area. And the fact was they didn't have space for uh, preschools in their K through 12 charter schools. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the organization through this testing was able to come up with this model where they had a, a bus, which ultimately, this the spoiler alert, <laughs> didn't end up working because of the licensing and the state didn't allow them to have these mobile preschools moving around the areas. <laughs> Turns right, out it's right. kind of dangerous for kids, maybe. Um, but it helped them realize through that process the importance of, of, of preschool education and, and that these families wanted preschool education. And so they ended up um, implementing uh, preschools in all of their K through 12 schools. So this was an innovation that would not have happened, but for um, really a focus on innovation as part of the DNA of the organization. Uh, the next strategy that I talk about in the book is measuring impact. And the organizations that 
tend to grow more quickly tend to say that they began measuring their impact very early on in the organization, like from the very start. And I hypothesized when I saw that data that it was because organizations were responding to funders, that funders just want data. They're getting data so that they can get their, uh, their, um, you know, their funding. But in fact, these organizations are measuring their impact because they genuinely care about whether what they're doing is working. So this gets back to the testing point. It's not just to prove that what they're doing is working. It's to improve on their model as they go. Right, right. Um, and, and you can do this even if you're not a huge organization and don't have a lot of resources. I think it's it's hard when you're starting an organization to think, oh my goodness, I have to be a data scientist to be yeah, able to yeah. do anything with, with, with all this data that I'm collecting. But you can do very simple surveys. And really the key here is to hone in on two or three in metrics that really matter. So right, um, right. an organization that I interviewed, uh, Braven, founded by Ami Eubanks-Davis, is helping students who are under-resourced in college to help them get jobs and graduate at a faster rate um, like their peers. When she started the program, she wasn't able to know four years out whether these folks would graduate. But she was able to figure out key indicators towards success. So, for example, were their mentors saying that they would uh, recommend them for a job as a proxy for determining whether they would actually get a job? Or were they attending classes as a proxy for whether they would actually graduate? And when I talked to Braven's funders, um, early funders like the Peary Foundation, um, they said that these metrics were really key to getting funded. So it makes sense that the organizations that are collecting metrics early on are the ones who can go out and talk about their impact, and those are the organizations that get funding. The third strategy that I talk about in the book is the uh, importance of funding experimentation. So this is applying design thinking. We often think about applying design thinking to the programming aspects, which makes sense. Um, But why not also apply it to funding and and thinking about testing different models for uh, revenue generation um, on the for-profit side, but then also getting super creative about uh, f- generating philanthropic capital um, on the nonprofit side. I love the story of Room to Read, this amazing organization which is t- working on girls' literacy and education around the world. They they are a fifty million dollar organization uh, that relies on champions, like-minded individuals who care about their causes to raise money for them. They have folks um, in uh, 40 different chapters in 16 different countries around the world raising their, their capital. And so some of these really creative fundraising models are the models that actually um, end up propelling organizations to the next level. And I, I tell a lot of those different stories in the book to get people thinking about what that might look like. Collective leadership is the fourth strategy that I talk about. Mm-hmm. These 
organizations that succeed tend to have a very, very distributed model of leadership. And this is contrary to what we think about in the social entrepreneurship sector, where we tend to have this hero model or entrepreneurship in general. We associate Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook. We associate Steve Jobs with Apple. Um, But in fact, there are thousands of employees who make Facebook and Apple run on a daily basis. Um, And so, you know, the same thing is true in the nonprofit sector. The the organizations that thrive tend to have really strong senior leadership team. They uh, tend to really rely on their staff um, as the front line of the organization, and they empower their staff to um, to to make decisions in meaningful ways that that makes them feel strong and part of the organization. And then they have really strong boards of directors. They they tend to have a really strong ED board chair partnership, and that can be a really important catalyst to growth. And then finally, the storytelling. Like you said, this is, of course, what we all like to hear about. Um, and these organizations that grow tend to prioritize the practicing of storytelling at every single level in the organization. I think we all think when we hear a great political speech or, you know, a TED talk, we think, wow, that person's just a natural. But when I went out and talked with these folks who were giving these TED talks, you know, they all told me, you have no idea how much coaching I got in order to give that (laughs) TED talk with a million views. Um, And so they're able to get that coaching for themselves at the leadership level, but then also translate that to their staff. IDEO.org has this thing they call storytelling roulette where they 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 um, turn the wheel and someone on the staff where whoever it lands has to tell a story of a project that the communications team gives them um, and they have to do this on the spot and this creates that that muscle that helps it helps exercise that storytelling muscle because their point is that everyone has to be a brand ambassador for the organization. And so everyone has to be able to go out there and tell a story. Um, And so prioritizing that is really what helps organizations uh, propel towards success. Amazing. Amazing. I love the, um, the five key pillars you have here and you know, it's, it, it aligns well. I mean, I, uh, it's, it's nice to see it kind of like brought into focus and as a result of so much of your hard work and research um, that you brought this to life basically for people. And it's in, in more of a simplistic uh, structure that you can look at this, you can understand it. Obviously, there's a ton to unpack here and understand. Um, yeah. But it is nice to have it simplified in some way just to really wrap your head around it, right? Test, measure, funding, uh, leading, collaboratively, telling stories. I mean, you can really just kind of dive into these things and um, get a lot out of it. And Absolutely. And your book does a great job of that. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, it's really, it's all about the stories and giving people, you know, ideas for how they could implement them within their organization. But to me, what's most exciting about these findings is that, you know, when I was out there interviewing, I kept waiting for someone to say, oh, it's just charisma or grit or a brilliant idea that really helps people succeed. But they didn't say that. You know, not one person said it's, it just comes down to charisma. And it's not to say that charisma isn't important or that, you know, we have to have a good idea if we want to succeed. Those things are important too, but it's really boils down to this set of tools and strategies that 
any organization at any point in their growth can implement. And to me, that's really exciting because it's a really equalizing force for the nonprofit and for-profit sector. Yep. Mixed total sense. Um, I love it. And, you know, obviously a change curator, we're big on storytelling. And I think, you know, it's, it's basically in our minds, it's peer to peer and generation to generation learning. And there's just no other way, um, better way to go about it is to expedite your success. So, um, I want to be respectful of your time and I appreciate you talking about your book and your experiences, um, and sharing your thoughts on nonprofit and for-profit. Um, just a ton of good insights here. Um, I just want to give a shout out to where people can find you. Um, Thank that you. Is www.kathleenjanus.com. It's K-A-T-H-L-E-E-N-J-A-N-U-S.com. And we'll have that on our website. Um, and Kathleen, you want to give a shout out to your other organization, Spark? People might want to check out what else you're doing there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have chapters for Spark in New York and San Francisco, and you can find out more about Spark at www.sparksf.org. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks again for your time. I appreciate uh, the book and all the work you've done and the time today to talk. So let's stay in touch. Thanks so much, Adam. That's all for this episode. Your next step is to join the change creator revolution by downloading our interactive digital magazine app for premium content, exclusive interviews, and more ways to stay on top of your game. Available now on iTunes and Google Play or visit changecreatormag.com. We'll see you next time where money and meaning intersect right here at the Change Creator Podcast.